Joshua's narrative and, and so on. But you get into the book of the prophets, the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, and boy, some of that stuff gets tough. When I was invited to go to Kenya to teach a course on the, on the book of Romans, I was sure glad it wasn't Isaiah or Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's all over the place time-wise. <laughs> you can't do a chronological study uh, just right through the book like you can in Romans. By the way, I do have some sets of notes that I prepared for that class. There's one copy on the table, but I have others under the table if you're interested. But here's what I've learned, folks. When we come to the epistle like Romans, I wonder how many of us have read the book of Romans through at one sitting. When I was asked to teach on the book of Romans, fortunately I had a little over a year and a half to prepare for the class because I was recovering from heart surgery. And... Um, I thought, man, I, I, I've never I've never done a book study like a pastor. I, I just preach individual messages, you know, and, and here's the first chance I get to act like a pastor and feel like a real teacher. Where do I start? I thought, well, duh. How about reading the book of Romans once a week, which I started to do. And then I got my college notes. I think there were 15 or 16 pages of college notes. And I got my professor's permission to expand on that. And then I started reading other commentaries. And Griffith Thomas is absolutely wonderful. I, I highly recommend Griffith Thomas's books. They're not designed for theologians. They're designed, they're devotional commentaries. And they are rich. It's like a high-class Old Town buffet. Higher class than Old Town. But, I mean, it's like a real fancy buffet. And just... Rich, rich with his with his insights, and that developed into about seventy or eighty or ninety pages of notes back there. But folks, if you read through, take whatever time, miss a football game, and take that hour to sit down and read through the book of Romans from chapter one to chapter sixteen, and do the first thing with First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, and read through the epistles. At, a, at, a, at one entire sitting, and here's what will happen. When you when you do that after you've done it a few times, well, the first time may be difficult. And if you're like I was, I found that by the time I got to the end of chapter 1, I said, what did I just read? I've been thinking about this, that, and the other thing. Isn't the devil like that? If you have to read out loud, it takes you longer, but read out loud if necessary. But what happens is when you start reading these epistles through at one sitting, what will happen is you will begin to get a bird's eye view of the overall picture of the epistle. That you will never get by just reading a verse here and a verse there and, and, and not looking at the whole theme as it's developed throughout the book. I challenge you to do that. I think it'll, it maybe will transform your own, your own devotional time and it certainly has done that for me. And uh, there's no reason why any Christian in America today can't read through their Bible at least once a year. I was told you can read through it four times a year. I thought, really? So I thought, I'm going to try it. And I found out you have to read four, a minimum of 40 chapters a day. If you miss one day, you've got to read 80 chapters the next day. Now, I'm, 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 I'm happy to tell you or not that it can be done. I did it. But how much did I get from it? Nothing. You can't read 40 chapters a day. And uh, folks, we don't want to read the Bible. Just say, man, I read my Bible through four times this year. Yeah, what would you learn from it? Nothing. Better to take your time going through it and, and, and get something out of it. And if you'll do what I suggest, I think you'll find it'll, it'll, it'll throw a whole new light, particularly on the epistles. So there's the milk of the word. There's the meat of the word, Hebrews chapter 5. Go back to Psalm 1, please. And notice in verse 3, 
Not only do we need to be separated from the world and strengthened by the word, and by the way, there's no spiritual growth apart from the word of God. We also need to be situated by the water. Remember? Water, W-O-O-D-E-R. They just spell it funny. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Notice the man of God who delights, uh, who's blessed, does not delight in the things of verse 1, but delights in the things of verse 2, the law of the Lord, meditating therein. And notice he's also situated by the water. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Notice first it's a place of planting. The word planted here denotes a deliberate act of cultivation. It's not like a little bird flying over too many seeds in his mouth and drops a seed and it falls and grows. No, this this term denotes a deliberate, concentrated act of planting. Now, obviously, God is the is the planter and you and I are the tree. And I'll tell you what we have here. We have one of several biblical examples of what we call God's will for your life. The question is, are you planted where God wants you to be? And so many times we think of the will of God as it relates to the ministry, the call of God to preach or to be a missionary or an evangelist or whatever. Folks, listen, the will of God affects every child of God. God calls some people to be pilots. I'm thankful for that, or I wouldn't be able to take mission trips, because the boats take too long. Uh, I'm glad God calls men to be farmers, because I enjoy my meals. I wouldn't want to be a farmer. Uh, back in 1980, we were on our way back from Alaska. We had meetings in, in Kansas, and and this farmer had a bunch of new piglets, and I was thinking of Winnie the Pooh's kind of a piglet, you know, with clean and smelling sweet. Listen, folks, you don't smell those pigs. You feel the smell. 50 yards away from the pen. We were in Wisconsin, walked into a dairy farmer's milking parlor, and Barb said, what's that awful smell? He said, you? He said, you're the only thing the cows smell that's different. (laughs) This is where your ice cream comes from. Somehow you almost lose your taste for ice cream. Like when you see pigs in their natural habitat, who wants a BLT anymore? Well, the fact is that uh, God calls some men to be farmers, producing food for us to eat so we can survive. I'm glad God calls teachers. I'm glad God calls some people to be uh, medical people. And every every walk of life, folks, you have people who are called of God to be that walk of life, to be that in that career. We sometimes give young people the wrong question and wonder why we get the wrong answer. We say, what are you going to do with your life? That's not the question. It's not their life to do anything with. They're saved. The question ought to be, what does God want you? What do you think God wants you to do? Where does God want you to go to college? Who does God want you to marry? By the way, when I was in Spain last time, I spent quite a bit of time with a young man who was not saved, knew he needed to be saved, was not saved because he had a girlfriend. And this girlfriend was an agnostic who discouraged him from even coming to church. And I finally said to him, uh, whatever his name was, are you going to let that girl send you to hell? I mean, sometimes you just have to be kind of blunt with folks. Are you going to let that girl send you to hell? Because you're telling me you know you're going to go to hell if you don't get saved, and you won't get saved because of some stupid girl. And that girl is an instrument of Satan to keep you out of heaven and send you to hell. Are you going to put up with that? 
Oh, but I love her. I said, listen, my friend, you get saved and give your life to God. And I'll tell you, God has something a whole lot better than her for you. And to my knowledge, he's still lost today. Because a girl comes between him and God. Now, the girl's not going to be responsible for sending him. He'll be responsible if he dies and goes to hell because he rejected Jesus Christ in favor of an agnostic young lady. But the fact is that God plants people in different places of the world to do different things. When I get ready to graduate from college, here I go with another personal illustration again, the Irish in me. I thought, you know, I had surrendered to the Lord. I'm going to be a preacher. I don't know. I may be a missionary. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know God's called me to the ministry. And I'm going to graduate in a few weeks. And God, I said, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. But, ooh, those buts. Do not capitalize, bold print, italicize, underline, red ink. (coughs) Do not, I repeat, do not send me Back to southeastern Pennsylvania. You know where God put us? I accepted a position as a assistant pastor and music director at a church, Faith Baptist Church in Chester, South Carolina. Oh, that's wonderful, Lord. It's not Pennsylvania. We have a Faith Baptist Church in Chester, Pennsylvania. That wasn't the one. Oh, praise the Lord, I'm going to be in South Carolina. A month before Barbara and I were to be married... Got a letter from the deacon, told me to call him right away. Church had gone through a very, very critical crisis, and they were not able to hire a new staff. A pastor had left, and so they said, we're sorry, but we can't have you come. Uh Uh-oh. I had applied for a summer job at the railroad where my brother worked, and the boss there said, no, I can't use you for the summer. He said, I need somebody for at least a year. I said, okay. I got another job. Uh, I forget what I did now, but anyway... After all this happened, my brother's boss said, Dennis, did your brother ever get that church down in South Carolina? He said, no, everything fell through. He said, tell him to come see me. I've got a job for him. I'm about to get married. You better have some way of supporting a wife. They're expensive. (laughs) Cost you the price of the marriage license and your paycheck for the rest of your life. You ladies know I'm just kidding, right? Right? Guys, you better see the table. Forget your women. All right, anyway. Um, so I went to see the boss, and, and he said, I've got a job for you. And I said, well, can I have a week to pray? But he said, yes, but i got to know next Monday. So okay. So I went home, and I prayed, Lord, if you want me to take the job, just let me, let me hear nothing from a church. Lord, if you don't want me to take the job, if you want me in the ministry now or in the near future, all I'm asking for, kind of like the fleece, is let me just get a letter from a church. Even if it's a letter, ask me, hey, you owe me five bucks. All right? Just a letter that has a church stationery on it. The week came and went. Okay, so I accepted the job. After I accepted the job on Monday afternoon, I went home and collected the mail. Guess what there was in the mail? A letter from a church. I said, Lord, couldn't we extend that deal for just one day? (laughs) Nope, a deal's a deal. I already accepted the job, committed myself, and... And spent four years in that, uh, one year in that job, three years in another job. All the while, I was an assistant pastor, one of those kinds of assistants that doesn't get paid. He just works. And then the last four years, the Lord opened the door for us to be full-time in the ministry. Folks, right back in southeastern Pennsylvania. Any further south, we're in Delaware. Any further east, we're in the Delaware River. Across the rivers, New Jersey. 
across New Jersey's the Atlantic Ocean. It's nowhere near as pretty as the Pacific Ocean, but it's a lot quieter. It's a lot more Pacific than the Pacific. <clears throat> and the Lord opened the door for us to actually get a new church. In the town we lived in, there were 40, 46,000 people and 97 churches. Only one was a gospel preaching church. God enabled us to start a church with a national pastor from Jamaica to minister to uh, the minorities of our city. Our city was very, very heavily in the minority majority. They were not the minority in our city. They were the majority. And as far as I know, that church is still going today. Planted where God wants you to be. Eleven years ago, no, ten, uh, eleven, yeah, eleven years ago, God called us to pack up like, like Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees, leave Philadelphia, leave the Phillies, leave the cheesesteaks, and move south. That was not an easy decision for Barb and me to make. We lived in the house for 28 years. We built our marriage there, raised our children there. It was home. God said, no, I want you to move. So we packed up and left. I think I took it more emotionally than my wife did. And then the Lord blessed us with a grandson, which made, it, made the move worth it all. I told someone on the phone, I said, man, I wouldn't want to be 28 years old again. He said, oh, you you hurt my feelings. I said, no, 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 no. If I was 28, I wouldn't have a grandson. Having a grandson makes being old worth it. Planted where God wants you to be. Notice, by the way, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers. It's in the plural. And the idea here is that if you are where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do, the way God wants it done... There will never be a lack in meeting the the supply of your needs. My God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory if we're in the will of God, if we're faithfully serving him. Barb and I are living testimonies to that over the years. Notice it's also a place of productivity that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. God desires his people to be fruit bearers. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Roman believers he had not yet visited there. He said, I have this yearning, this desire to be with you, that I might have some fruit among you. Not apples and oranges, but some spiritual fruit. People saved, the, the saints of God, encouraged and strengthened. More and more today, I'm finding that the work of the evangelist is doing more of the Ephesians 4 work than the Second Timothy 4 work. The ministering, encouraging, and challenging the saints of God and trying to set some fires, uh, spiritual fires, under the pews of God's people. To get them up and get them going again, serving the Lord full time with all of their hearts. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He desires that we bear fruit, then there's the more fruit, and then there's the much fruit stage. And by the way, to get to the much fruit stage, you know what there is? There's a process of pruning. You ever see an apple orchard, pictures of apple orchards up along Lake Michigan? And they're flat. They got crew cuts. We saw coming up through Southern California. I don't know what kind of trees they were, what fruit trees they were, but they were flat tops. They, they cut them up. They cut them down. You know why? They don't look as nice when they're blooming, but it keeps the energy within the tree. And you know what? It bears more fruit and it bears better fruit. But pruning is not fun. Pruning is not, e- it's, it's, it's not just getting a haircut. Some of you guys, when you got a haircut, they kind of went all the way, didn't they? Uh, but it's, it can be, it can be a painful process, this pruning. But it's a necessary process for us to grow in the things of God. Notice, thirdly, it's a place of prosperity. 
Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. By the way, notice the leaf not being withered. The leaf suggests the health of the tree. If the leaf is withered, it suggests that there's not going to be much fruit or what there is won't be very good. But his prosperity, whatever he does, shall prosper. Now, too often we associate prosperity with financial advancement. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. I remember one lady in India. I mean, folks, I'm not exaggerating. She came up to here on me. Her name was Achama, which in Malayalam is Rachel. She went home to be with the Lord at the age of 88. She had been saved more years than most Indians live. And uh, and what what a voice. I mean, she was 90% lungs. That woman had a preacher's voice. Oh, I'd love to hear her pray in prayer meeting. You, you sense that you were in the presence of God with that dear saint of God. The second time I went back to India was three years later, and, and Achama was not there. I asked about her. She said, Pastor, oh, she's been rather sick. She can't come. I said, can we go visit her? I said, yeah, I'd be glad to take you. So we walked through the rubber plantations and through the little bit of the woods to her little mud brick house. It was not hers. Lived with a relative and walked in. She must have seen me coming. I don't know. But when I walked in her room, she was sitting, lying on the edge of a, on a bed there, just a, a roughly handmade wood bed with a little plastic things woven together like a mat with a very thin mattress about like that on there. And I walked in there and she, her eyes, her face just lit up like a Christmas tree. And she spoke my name. I couldn't believe it. Ken Lynch. And I went over and I put my arm around her shoulder, helped her to sit up on the edge of the bed. And I sat on the edge of the bed with her. And she held my one hand so tightly I thought she was going to break the bones. And with the other hand she smacked. And I thought, ma'am, I've been a good boy. Why are you hitting me? They were love taps. And she looked up at me with those big, loving brown eyes that Indians have, you know. And she told me through the interpreter that she had been praying for me every day by name for three years that God would send me back to India. That woman didn't own but the clothes on her back. But I want to tell you something. She had something a lot of us have lost. That's the joy of the Lord. I remember a meeting we had when we first went into evangelism in the fall of 1977. It was one of those... Back on the East Coast, right, the two blocks from the Atlantic Ocean and in uh, uh, Cape May, New, or, uh, North Wildwood, New Jersey. It was one of those cold, damp, rainy days. You know, you get the, the low pressure and everybody kind of feels, you know, try to get a service going there. And, and there was a lady there named Mrs. Brooks. Everybody affectionately called her Brooksy. She was the executive secretary for the head of the mission agency years earlier when it was in Philadelphia. She was retired. She was in her 80s. And she had the most infectious chuckle and laugh. And everybody's kind of down and, and just, you know, one of those depressing fall days. And, and all of a sudden the door opened and in walks Brooksy with her typical, <laughs> her, her, her infectious giggle and laugh. And the whole atmosphere changed just because she was there. Boy, wouldn't you love to have a church full of people like that, Pastor? Who just walk in and you sense the presence of God. Listen, these people didn't have much, but they were prosperous. They had what really mattered. Ephesians 1.3 tells us we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. <clears throat> and if you think back in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph, sold by his brothers at the age of 17, uh, beaten, uh, uh, tied in shackles, and he, uh, Psalm talks about the shackles, and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, and 
And then he was sold to uh, the Ishmaelites, and the Ishmaelites sold him in a prophet to Potiphar, the captain of the Egyptian guard, the head executioner. His wife tries to seduce him. He refuses. She lies about him. He's arrested falsely. No trial, just thrown in jail, left for two years. And in Genesis 39, 2, the Bible says, And Joseph was a prosperous man in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Joseph didn't even own the clothes on his back or the bed in which he slept. And yet God says he was a prosperous man. The word prosperous conveys the idea of being successful as opposed to failure. What is success? Success is not being president of the United States. We all know that. Success is not being a billionaire. We all know that. Success is not having all these things that people crave today. Folks, you know, let me tell you what success is. Here's a practical, simple working definition. Success for the believer is finding God's will and faithfully doing it. Whatever it is, wherever it is, with whomever it is. Just simply put, finding God's will and faithfully doing it. God never calls us to be successful as the world counts success. I read some of these publications about these great soul-winning conferences across the country, and all the speakers are advertised by how many people they baptized the previous year. What about Noah? Noah would never have been invited. Noah preached 120 years. And how many converts did he have? Three boys and three girls, his daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law. Noah preached 100. How many people did he baptize? None, although the whole world was immersed during his lifetime. Right? They got baptized, but it wasn't believers' baptism, but they got immersed all right as God destroyed the earth. Listen, folks, success is simply being faithful to the will of God. God doesn't call us to be successful. God calls us to be faithful. Moreover, brethren, it is required in a steward that a man be found faithful. Well, that takes us to the end of verse 3. Tomorrow night we're going to come back to Psalm 1, if it's okay, Pastor. And we will look at the last three verses, the ungodly man, by way of contrast. Let's bow together as we pray. Our Father, we thank you again tonight for this wonderful psalm, this introduction to the, to the early Christians' hymn book. Lord, I pray that as we contemplate what we have read and studied in these first three verses, that we will first of all examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. And if there's any question about that, may it be settled for all time and eternity, even tonight. But, Father, we've also talked about and examined the idea of being surrendered to your will, being focused on what you have for us to do and where it is, with whom it is. Lord, help us not to delight in the counsel of the world, the wicked, but help us to delight in the counsel of the word of God. For the Spirit of God is our teacher, our guide, our instructor. And help us, Father, to be in that place of planting and prosperity where we're bearing the fruit that you want us to bear by your grace and for your glory. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder, is there anyone here tonight say, Preacher, God spoke to my heart and I'm I'm not saved as far as I know. If I died tonight, I do not know whether I'd be in heaven or hell. God knows I don't want to die and go to hell. But I want to be saved. Would you please pray for me? If that's the desire of your heart, would you let me know right now by just quietly lifting your hand? Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure of heaven, but I would like to be.
Anyone? Again, many of my remarks tonight have been aimed at believers, God's people. I trust God has spoken to your heart tonight, and that if he has, you'll be willing to respond and surrender and submit to his will for your life. Father, thank you now for this time together this evening. Bless your word to our hearts, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Pastor.